0: Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week we got news from Like Moss the Flames, Paramore, a radio rundown, and the final part of our deep dive on how Bring Me the Horizon became the scene's biggest band. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out and you're not in the area you can download the station's app just search 94.3 the x in the app store and tune in this saturday as always you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the note to scene spotify playlist and if you have any comments questions or requests for deep dives email me at note to scene at gmail.com all right let's get started so like most of flames released their new album no eternity in gold last friday through unified the record was produced by Carson Slovak and Grant McFarland. Carson has played in a couple of metalcore bands Arms Bend Back and Century, and then Grant played in Century with Carson as well as This or the Apocalypse. Carson is pretty well versed in the production side of the scene. He's been working time and time again with August Burns Red for more than a decade now and really helped tie together their signature metalcore sound. He also did a lot of early work with Texas in July, which makes sense given how everyone said that they sounded like August Burns Red at the beginning. But for this Moths album, I honestly went in not expecting much. This band came along at peak rise and it followed multiple projects from their vocalist Chris Roder. Dude was a pretty talented vocalist, but for some reason he just couldn't keep a band going. He was in Emerosa for their This Is Your Way Out EP, he started a metalcore band called A Graceful that released one album on Sumerian called The Great I Am. He was even in a metalcore band called Corpus Christi for a brief tour, and he featured on an early before their eyes song from 2007 called close your eyes it's okay to rest So by the time Moths released their first album in 2011, it had already felt like Chris was just going to abandon another project. So between that and joining a quickly saturating genre on its ground zero record label, I think that ultimately is what led to Moths never actually becoming a big band. But with that being said, they have put out some great music in recent years that's largely been overlooked. In 2017, they released an album called Dark Divine that was their first that leaned predominantly into post-hardcore and at times even just straight rock world. But... This new album sees them taking the best moments they learn from that lighter sound and covering it in just dark metalcore, like solid hooks, some dynamic structures that don't just rely on building up to breakdowns the entire time, and some honestly tasteful programming moments that are somewhat reminiscent of Bring Me The Horizon at times. This is a surprisingly solid album, and it's cool to see this band still being able to pump out quality shit a decade into their career, despite never really breaking out into a larger size tier or money bracket. I'm at a 7 out of 10 on No Eternity in Gold. Fans of C and Metalcore should definitely, definitely give this a spin. In other news... There was a lot of paramour drama last week dealing with current and past members. I'm just going to touch the bases here on the episode, but if you want more info, just head to -to Notetoscene.com where we wrote about it a little more in-depth. So last week, a screenshot of a Facebook comment from ex-Paramore member Josh Farrow began spreading on Twitter. In the comment, he compared homosexuality to pedophilia. I did a little digging when it surfaced, and I found the comment on Facebook. It's definitely real, and he was actually responding to someone who had left a comment on a status his wife had made in July. Haley obviously caught wind of what he had said and tweeted, There's a reason there are only three members left in Paramore. And surprise, haters, it ain't because of me. She went on to say that obviously Paramore does not condone religiously slash politically dogmatic beliefs. There was some additional commentary from Josh's brother, Zach, who has since rejoined the band after he left with Josh. But as far as I know, Josh has yet to respond to Haley or the situation at all. So like I said, if you want to go a little bit more in depth on this, head over to Notetoscene.com. So onto this week's radio rundown. At top 40 radio, Machine Gun Kelly and Black Bear made another jump this week to 29 with My Ex's Best Friend. All Time Low is still at number one on alternative radio. Still. It's amazing what a run this has been for that band. MGK's Bloody Valentine actually jumped back up to number 3 from 4 last week, so it broke even in plays, but I still expect that to fall off the chart within the coming weeks. I don't know how but They Found Me's Leave Me Alone jumps from 8 to number 6. I've been telling y'all this is going to be a big moment for these ex-Panic of the Disco and Falling in Reverse duo. At this point, it's a safe bet for a top five. We'll see if it can get to number one. They dropped their new album last week too, and it sounds like if Panic's pretty odd and Paramore's after laughter and 21 Pilots and the Killers like formed a band. Actually, some surprisingly solid moments on it that I was not expecting. But over at Rock Radio, I Prevail break even at number 6, but still up over 7% in plays. Definitely expect this to make some waves in the top 5. Asking Alexandria's They Don't Want What We Want is up 2 spots this week to number 17. This is definitely going to break the top 10 in a few weeks. Bad Omens actually jumped a spot back up to 22, and they're up over 13% in plays this week, so maybe the song isn't over just yet, which is pretty cool. Bring Me's Parasite Eve is down from 20 to 23, dropping over 25% in plays. I think this song is finally done. The weekly roller coaster for Motionless and White's Killers cover continues as they jump three spots to 31. I've just got my fingers crossed that this can actually build some momentum now. And then we have Architects Animals, which moved from 43 to 41. This is gonna be a very slow burn if this song actually does build momentum and moves up the chart. It's up over 20 spins from last week, so that's a positive sign really early on. I'm really, really excited to watch it over the next few months. Okay, so last week we covered the first half of Bring Me The Horizons career, from their formation and first demos in 2004 through the addition of Jonah Weinhoffen to the release of There Is A Hell in 2010. This week, we're going to go through the iconic Sempiternal, and that's the Spirit Cycles, and conclude with their new EP, Post-Human Survival Horror. So in late 2011 and early 2012, the band had some notable drama with their UK label, Visible Noise, Not many people remember this, but they were going to release a remix album to There Is A Hell just like they did for Suicide Season. The whole release was supposed to be with British electronic music producer Draper and called The Chill Out Sessions. So although it technically never received an official release, I remember the night that Ollie tweeted out a link to download it in full for free. It was taken down pretty quickly, but the band did end up getting it out there there are multiple full and individual rips on youtube you can listen to today it runs about 30 minutes long and it took crucify me it never ends fuck don't go Blessed With A Curse, and then an instrumental remix version of Blessed With A Curse as well. I love this thing. The name spells out exactly how it sounds. It's fantastic music to have on in the background while you're working. Just very low-key, ambient, electronic takes on the melodic parts from those songs in there as hell. Check out this bit from It Never Ends. So there was a growing tension between the band and Visible Noise that could basically be boiled down to the band wanting more resources that the label didn't have, which essentially means they wanted more money to do things that Visible Noise wasn't giving them. And to be fair, Bring Me had completely outgrown them at this point. So in July of 2012, Bring Me The Horizon became a major label band. They signed to RCA. RCA is owned by Sony and is one of their four flagship labels alongside Columbia. Epic, and Arista. Now I don't have this issue of Kerrang for proof, but apparently they ran a print piece for Sempaternal called How to Write the Hottest Album of 2013, where they apparently got a quote from RCA on signing Bring Me where they said, signing you is as important as signing Metallica. So that gives you some context on the hype this band had generated just from the first half of their career. So even though they were on RCA, they were still in a joint deal with Epitaph in the States at this point. Around the same time they announced their signing, the band was recording Sempaternal. This is where Jordan Fish enters the frame. Fish was playing in an ambient UK rock band at the time called Worship, but was hired on essentially as a studio hand to help the band develop their programming and electronics for Sempaternal. Fish and Bring Me got pretty close during this time, and his contributions to the album quickly evolved from small tweaks to helping write entire structures to songs. He was later announced as their official sixth member in 2013. On the other side of the member coin, there was drama between Jonah Weinhoffen and the rest of the band during the creation of Synth Eternal. Soon after Jordan joined the band, Jonah announced that he was no longer a member. Here was his statement. After a lot of time and thought, I've decided to leave my current position as guitarist with Bring Me The Horizon. Things in the band have been very tense with a lot of disagreements between myself and certain members who I won't name. I'm thankful for my time with BMTH and I have met many good friends and been able to travel the world more. I'm planning on moving back to Australia to pursue other musical ventures. Thanks, Jonah. Ollie responded in a series of tweets where he said, I would like to advise our fans not to believe the comments or answers given by Jonah Weinhoffen regarding our album Sempiternal. He composed none of the final riffs or music heard on the record and recorded absolutely nothing heard on the record also. He had no involvement with the lyrics, nor were any lyric meanings ever disclosed to him. So from what I can gather, although I can't find any instance of it, Jonah was apparently claiming that he played a role in writing and recording some paternal. Obviously, Ali said he didn't, and he never received any official writing credit for it. So the only album Jonah ever played on for Bring Me was there as A Hell. After Bring Me, I Killed The Prom Queen officially reunited for a comeback album, which was called Beloved and came out in 2014, also on Epitaph. In 2015, during a Reddit AMA, a fan asked the band about Jonah, to which they responded, He's a cock. We gave him a picture of a Spitfire and sent him on his way. They obviously hate this guy, but they've never actually given a full reasoning as to why. Quick sidebar here on Jonah, I actually found this out while I was researching for the episode, but Jonah got canceled on Twitter in late 2018 because he tweeted a picture of a Chinese hot pot dish and said, Meat eaters be like, vegan food looks and tastes gross, and then eat something that looks like leftover dishwater. A columnist from CNN quoted this tweet and said, This is a Chinese hot pot. You engorged penis. It could be made with nothing but vegan ingredients, and it would still be delicious, and you'd still be a xenophobic tool. That quote tweet got over 97,000 likes and nearly 20,000 retweets. Jonah literally got media coverage on multiple websites from this because he's always been so outspoken on veganism and animal rights activism. Just such a random post-scene moment that I had no idea happened. But back to Simpaternal. So right before all of this member drama, the band had dropped the lead single, Shadow Moses, which was the inevitable spark to it all. But if you were there the day this song and video dropped, you know what a moment it was. The video was filmed on Rügen, which is Germany's largest island and is located right off the Pomeranian coast in the Baltic Sea. The music video features a filming technique called camera shift, which creates the bending hard cuts that we see. It's the second most viewed video of all time on Epitaph's YouTube channel with 69 million plays. Falling in Reverse's The Drug in Me Is You is the biggest with 80 million because that was the first song they released after Ronnie got out of prison. But Shadow Moses was the perfect song to release post there as a hell and truly showed the band's progression as songwriters and ultimately Jordan Fish's influence into their mix. So for the production of Simp Eternal, the band went with Terry Date who has worked with everyone from Slayer to Deftones to Limp Bizkit, Ollie loves Terry. He even said some of the work that Terry did on Bring Me's production made them sound like a completely different band. So Sempaternal was released in April 2013 through RCA and Epitaph. It was an incredible progression for the band, cementing them as a mainstay in the scene's top tier. You gotta remember, the time this record came out, the scene was going through its second golden era. 2013 was an insane year for our world. Of Mice and Men sold 51,000 first week. With Restoring Force, Sleeping With Sirens, Field did 60,000. A Day to Remember's Common Courtesy did 98,000. Sepp Eternal did lower than those at 27, but it was still a step up from There Is A Hell, and everyone who heard this album knew they were about to have the biggest cycle of their career. I could do an entire episode unpacking the dynamics of this record, there are that many layers to it. And again, just like we saw on There Is A Hell, no band was making music that sounded like this album. Bring Me created their own breed of hybrid alternative metalcore layered with dynamics of self-reflection and denial of faith that came off two albums of questioning God's existence. And on top of that, hyper-relatable Tumblr one-liners. I still think Tyler Joseph from 21 Pilots lays awake at night because he wishes he wrote the line, I can't drown my demons, they know how to swim. But Sempaternal was a massive moment for the band, and like I said, anyone who was around for that cycle could literally feel it. So after spending the spring playing tons of festival slots and doing a UK headliner with CrossFaith and Empress AD, they spent the summer 2013 on Warp Tour, I remember watching their set in Chicago that year, standing what felt like two football fields back, watching them on a little hill where the parking lot elevated a bit, seeing how they had by far the biggest crowd of that day, and just knowing in that moment they were going to be one of the biggest bands in the scene. On August 5th, Ali inserted himself into one of the scene's biggest drama moments of the last decade. Kellen Quinn, charging $80 for his Polaroid tour package. Literally the entire scene mobilized that day and called him and Sleeping With Sirens out. Ollie joined in and tweeted, Next USA tour, Ollie Sykes, special Polaroid package. Take a photo with me, special price, absolutely no charge at all, fucking cockstars. Ollie Sykes called Sleeping With Sirens cockstars. What a moment that was. Afterwards, the two made up, and the feather tattoo on the side of Ollie's face is something that he actually got as a sign of burying the hatchet between the two. It's supposed to be the feather from Sleeping's Feel album cover. I think it's funny because after this, he grew his hair out and that tattoo was covered up for years, but once ammo came around, he cut it and everyone had forgotten about sleeping with sirens, so I feel like not a lot of people know he has a piece of sleeping history literally tattooed on his face. But so after Warped, they went on a North American headline tour for the album with direct support from Of Mice and Men and Issues while Let Live and North Lane rotated the opening slot for a portion of it. After that headliner, they were direct support for A Day to Remember on their headlining tour with opening support from Motionless and White and Chiodos. That was three massive U.S. tours back to back to back, including Warped, and they were still only getting bigger. They were dominating the market here in the States at that point. It was also during the summer of 2014 at the inaugural APMAs where Bring Me One Album of the Year and Ali gave an acceptance speech where he revealed that he had gone to rehab during the There is a Hell cycle for ketamine addiction. I was working at Alt Press at the time, and it was just a massive, massive moment. So not only were they on the biggest cycle of their career, but they were making their biggest headline moments as well. So they're nearing the end of the Sempaternal cycle. They'll play the final show for the album at Wembley Arena on December 5th, but before that, they surprise dropped a song Nobody Saw Coming. Around the second week of October 2014, a super brief snippet of a new Bring Me The Horizon song leaked. It was like nothing we had ever heard before from the band. It sounded like a pure stadium anthem, and Ollie was straight up singing, no metalcore. It got people talking like, wait, what? And then, on October 21st, Bring Me The Horizon created one of the scene's biggest moments, of the last decade by releasing drown as far as new music goes for a non-breakout band i can't remember a time over the last 10 years that was bigger for a band releasing a new song there's always hype when there's a sound change like i remember when a day to remember released violence out of nowhere and everyone freaked but literally everyone freaked when bring me dropped drown i was kind of deep in the hardcore community around that time and i remember even seeing the elitist pricks from that world being like, yeah, okay, this is good. There were rando comments of people trying to shit on the lyrics, saying that they were basic, etc, etc, and people would literally flame you if you tried to hate on this song. I've never seen the entire scene rally positively the way they did around this track. And at that point, the scene was more than double the size that it is now. It was just incredible. Whoever writes the book on the scene will need an entire sidebar for the day Drown dropped. Universal praise in the middle of a second commercial peak from a scene that would literally crumble underneath the weight of its own existence a few years later. One thing that I even forgot until I was looking shit up for the show was that Epitaph accidentally published the song earlier than they originally intended and took it down and then put it back up. Bring Me tweeted once it was finally up. Since our label are still struggling with the concept of AM and PM, Drown is here early, enjoy. It's interesting now because the video link in that post leads to a deleted video, so I'm not entirely sure what went on there, but Drown is the highest the band have ever gotten on the UK's Hot 100 equivalent chart, where it peaked at number 17. Now, not a lot of people remember that the band released another song a couple weeks after Drown because it's not on any streaming services, but Bring Me dropped a second new track in November of 2014 called Don't Look Down as part of the re-scoring for the movie Drive. The track featured Orifice Volgatron from the hip hop group Foreign Beggars. It's a complete 180 from Drown and honestly incredible to hear now because it feels like something they'd release in 2020. It's very drum and bass centered, hip hop leaning with the Foreign Beggars feature, but it still has that signature bring me sound that we know today. It's so wild to look back on this song because when they dropped it in 2014, they got so much backlash from how much people hated it that they released an entire statement explaining why they did it a day after they dropped it. Here's what they said. We appreciate the level of passion, both good and bad, for Don't Look Down. We are really proud of what we created, but at the same time, we understand people's confusion and panic after hearing the track. We were approached by Radio 1 to score a piece of music for a rescore of the movie Drive. Now, if you've seen Drive, I'm sure you will agree neither anything from our previous albums nor Drown would have fit very well with the vibe of that particular movie. So, we decided to create a piece of music that did justice to the amazing scene we were given. We took the opportunity to make something completely different, to do something completely different, something that we wouldn't usually do, although I feel that doesn't really make sense anymore, because we never do the same thing twice. We experiment, we change it up, we take risks, because we don't want to stay the same and we want to breathe life into this lackluster genre, and we want to keep you guessing on what's coming next. Big up, Orifice, Volgatron of Foreign Beggars for collaborating on the track, and once again, if you can tune in to BBC Three tonight at 10 and watch the whole movie, it's an amazing project, and we think we've smashed our part, and hope you guys feel the same once you've seen it. Peace. BMTH. Then, after two incredibly polarizing moments, the band went fairly silent until June 2015 when they started the viral campaign for their new album. Photos of umbrellas started randomly popping up around the world and in the band's photos on social media. On July 15th, the band released the first official single to That's the Spirit, Happy Song. The track is founded with new metal and these grunge-leaning riffs and a cheerleader chant hook that gets stuck in your head for just days. It really did set the tone for what was to come over the next few weeks, cause a week and a half later, they dropped Throne. I remember it being the day after the 2015 APMAs, and I was out to lunch with Matt when it came out, and he just looks over at me and goes, This is the best scene song I've heard this decade so far. It remains arguably the band's biggest song overall, and really set the bar for where they would lean back on during their most recent releases. After this came True Friends, then Avalanche, and then That's the Spirit was finally released on September 11th, 2015 through RCA and Columbia, which the band had signed to in July. This was their first fully major label release and first not with epitaph since Count Your Blessings. This album remains the band's biggest commercial moment of their career. Between Drown and Throne alone, they had drummed up enough hype to carry the anticipation for a full length. And they did what Bring Me has always done. They just delivered. That's the Spirit is the best-seen album of the last decade. The dynamic layers of everything from metalcore and new metal to alt-rock and straight pop all executed at a top Tier level of musicianship, and the band didn't even have an outside producer for it. Just shut it the fuck down. This is the best we got from our world in the last 10 years. That's the spirit sold 62,000 total units first week. 55,000 of those were traditional, and 7,000 were from streaming. This is by far the band's biggest first week in the States, and further proves what happens when you have hype and deliver on it. Bring Me went on a U.S. headlining tour in the fall of 2015 with support from Issues in Paris. After that came a European tour, then back to the U.S. for a headliner in between festival appearances in spring of 2016, then an Australian tour, and another European tour. It's another thing that Bring Me has never gotten credit for and contributes tenfold to their success. They are fucking road dogs. I'm sure the pandemic has been odd for them given that they weren't necessarily planning to hide away to make new music, but before we move on to the next cycle, I wanna bring up a notable moment in the spring of 2016 that has largely been forgotten about and is a perfect example of how they always manage to keep themselves in the conversation. So in November of 2015, Rock Music's most boring yet massive band, Coldplay, announced their new album, A Head Full of Dreams. Their album cover featured a rainbow version of the Flower of Life symbol that Bring Me the Horizon had used for Sump The day they announced it, Bring Me fans poured the gas by calling out Coldplay for stealing the artwork from Bring Me, and then Ollie lit the match when he chimed in and said they were, quote, jacking our stees. This sent the scene into a pure frenzy. Bring Me the Horizon is calling out Coldplay? What in the fuck? How did we get here? Sykes later gave a statement to NME and said, I have no idea. At the end of the day, it's not our symbol. It's a very old symbol. They might not have known at first, but obviously if you Google flower of life, the first thing that comes up is bring me the horizon Sempaternal. It's like if you Google the images, someone's gonna have said something to them. So whether it was intentional or not, it is the same. Here's the thing. I don't think Ollie or the band actually thought Coldplay stole the idea from them. I think one, they were at the peak of their career and they knew it would create a shitstorm of people talking about them, and mainly a lot of people who have never heard their band before. And two, it's fucking Coldplay. I despise that band with a passion, but they're fucking massive. And any chance that Bring Me could actually get their attention would be a good look for them. What I don't think they expected was that they were actually going to have the chance to get Coldplay's attention. So in February of 2016, Bring Me the Horizon performed Happy Song at the NME Awards. Coldplay was there in attendance as well. During the song, Ali left the stage, wandered through the banquet hall while the band was still performing, got on top of Coldplay's table right before the song's climax, broke the legs while he was screaming, and jumped off and never looked back. That day was insane at alt press. The traffic was rolling the fuck in. We ran at least five stories on this the morning after the show. Coldplay singer Chris Martin actually responded to what happened and said he had never heard of Bring Me before that night, but liked their performance and said it was, quote, very rock and roll. Ollie denied that it was intentional that he trashed their table specifically, which I absolutely hated. He easily could have doubled down right then and just said, fuck it, fuck Coldplay, but nothing else ever happened after that night, and that was the end of one of the scene's most random beefs. Another thing that happened on the That's the Spirit cycle was Ollie Sykes' marriage and divorce to Hannah Snowden, which I touched on last week. I don't like getting into musicians' private lives, but because this ended in allegations of physical abuse against Ollie, I think it's important to address. So Sykes and Snowden married on July 12, 2015. A little over a year later, it was revealed that the two had separated, It was messy and very public. They both accused each other of infidelity. Snowden posted multiple videos and statements online telling her story. Here is one where she alleged the abuse. She said, "'Play the victim, be the victim. Own your own truth and be fucking real about it. I was in an abusive relationship. I fucked up.' I don't know how far the cheating went with the numerous strippers, but I was slapped and spat on on a number of occasions and it was a toxic relationship from relatively early on. I wasn't the first girl this entire pattern happened to. That is the end of it. I try to do this lightly, but enablers need to stop. I was one myself. I loved my husband and I know he loved me a lot too. But darkness like that has to be acknowledged. Stand tall and speak your truth. Be accountable for your actions. Don't be silenced by fear." Sykes eventually admitted to cheating, but never once addressed the abuse allegations. After a week or so of online back and forth between the two, they deleted everything and have been silent regarding their relationship ever since, save for the song Medicine off of Bring Me's album Ammo, which is supposedly about Hannah. And that brings us to the end of the spirit cycle. I mean, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, that's the spirit felt like the most important scene album of the 2010s. Now, fast forward to August of 2018, the band had begun teasing for their new era. There were teasers based around the question, do you wanna start a cult with me? That led to the release of the album's lead single, Mantra, on August 21st, 2018. This song has always felt like a diet version of That's the Spirit to me. Sometimes, I feel like bands either consciously or subconsciously mirror things from their previous successful albums. I felt the exact same thing with Undero's Desperate Times, Desperate Measures. It sits exactly at the same spot on Lost in the Sound as Writing on the Walls does on Define the Great Line, but although it's a great song, it falls short of the league that writing is in. Same thing with Mantra. It's the second song on Ammo, just like Happy Song is the second song on That's the Spirit, and although it's not a bad track, it just doesn't sit in the same league as Happy Song does. And for me, this slight level of disappointment kind of set the tone for the rest of Ammo. They released another single two months later on October 21st called Wonderful Life, which featured Cradle of Filth vocalist Danny Filth. Another Rage Against the Machine riff-heavy track backed by eerie electronics and a hook that relied on Ollie's kinda typical layered choir yell melodies. The horn section after the bridge is super underrated in this song and not nearly talked about enough. But an interesting sidebar for this track is that it was originally intended to be a Limp Biscuit song. Ollie and Jordan were hired on to work with Fred Durst on a new biscuit album. But according to Ollie, Durst didn't really ever show up. He said he just felt like Fred's management pressured him into the writing sessions and he just wasn't ready to make an album at that point. But for the first time in their career, it just felt like Bring Me was largely relying on tricks they already learned and executed on the previous cycle. But after this came to the two singles that i was waiting for medicine and mother tongue both came in january of 2019 leading up to the album's release that month they're built around new wave pop structures and are both some of the purest pop music the band has ever written all while still making them feel like bring me i was so excited for ammo after these came out especially mother tongue which leaned even more into the pop edm realm I thought for sure Sony would push them to alternative radio over here and they could gain some serious momentum for the first time outside of the rock box that they're in. But they only ended up submitting medicine for rock radio and it flopped because it was a pop song going up against fucking Five Finger Death Punch and Papa Roach. They never even tried anything, at least to my knowledge, with Mother Tongue. This is the other side of Ammo. Although I do feel like at certain points the band didn't live up to the bar they've set their entire career of constant, constant, constant progression, there is also just so much wasted potential here. Ammo was released on January 29th through Sony and RCA, and it only did 26,000 total units over here in the US. It wasn't even bundled with a tour. I still don't think it would have put them near the 62,000 of Spirit's first week, but certainly somewhere in the 40,000s, which looks a whole hell of a lot better to the industry than 26K. Only 16,000 were traditional units, down from the 55,000 traditional of That's the Spirit. Although Ammo did do 10,000 streaming units compared to Spirit's 7,000, which makes sense. I mean, streaming is only growing. But the bottom line is that Ammo was never going to be as big as Spirit, but it could have been much bigger than it ended up being. And I know every time I talk about this, people try to bring up that they debuted at number one in the UK with Ammo. Like I always tell people when we're talking about sales and charts, chart positions are reflective of what else is on the chart that week, not necessarily the overall success of a release. What you always want to know is how many units a record has sold and then compare it to their previous releases. That will tell you the full story. Unfortunately, the UK chart system just seems to be a little more private with their numbers because I have dug and dug and tried to ask around but I cannot find a first week UK total for That's the Spirit but what I have been able to dig up is that Ammo sold 27,000 units first week in the UK, which from what I understand is a very impressive first week total. And I also found Simp Eternal's UK first week total, which was 9,000. So Ammo is three times the size of Sempaternal out of the gates. That makes sense. But what would tell us the whole story is Spirit's first week total. Did it split the middle and do 18,000 first week and the band have just been doubling in size in the UK since Eternal? Or was Spirit much closer to Ammo? If anyone is aware of that total, please get in contact with me, I'd love to know. It would just give so much context to the band's current trajectory in the UK. So Ammo was out. The band played Jimmy Kimmel in February of 2019. They were on a US headliner around the release of the album with support from Thrice and Fever 333 when Ali ruptured his vocal cord and the band had to cancel a handful of remaining dates. He announced on March 1st though that he had been cleared to return to the stage from his doctors. So the band typically made headlines during the ammo cycle due to them saying that they were fed up with the state of rock music in the industry everything from the songwriting to the release structures. At one point they said they're done releasing albums to which they followed it up about a month later saying they were working on their new album but I think that was them just being on autopilot to say they were working on new material but so far they've kept their EP only statement. At the end of 2019, they surprise released an EP with a ridiculous title that I'm not even gonna try to read. It's commonly referred to as music to listen to. It's got eight songs, but runs longer than any album the band has previously released. It's really just an experimental project they used to do something with all the extra ideas they had laying around from ammo and other writing sessions. For the most part, this is fun to have on in the background while you're working or doing something else, but it's far from necessary listening. And the biggest takeaway from this is that we should never forgive the band for just throwing away a Halsey feature. She's on a song that's stylized with just an upside down question mark, and it's literally just a loop and it never really goes anywhere. Ali and Jordan also produced a song for Halsey that has largely been forgotten called Experiment on Me, which was featured on the Birds of Prey soundtrack. But that leads us to 2020, where just one week into quarantine, the band began working on their newest release, post-human survival horror. This is apparently one of the four EPs the band plan on releasing in a series. We'll see how that goes. Planned EP series have a history of falling apart when it comes to the scene. It's nine songs, four of which were released before the EP dropped, Ludens, Parasite Eve, Obey, and Teardrops. Ludens, which I think is the best of the four pre-release singles, came in November of last year and was created for the Death Stranding video game soundtrack album. It's interesting now to know this track came out months before the pandemic hit and it has the lyrics, how do I form a connection when we can't even shake hands? Parasite Eve came over the summer. It's a proto-Metalcore song that asks the questions, when we forget the infection, will we remember the lesson? Holly actually revealed in in Bring Me The Horizon's latest enemy cover story that the first line was originally, if we survive the infection but that even shook him too much, so he changed it. Obey features rising alt-rocker Youngblood. It's fast-paced and features even what feels like a newer take on the band's electronic rock metal sound, but there's something about the hook melody that just feels lazy. This song has not aged well for me. Teardrops really felt like a throwaway demo version of Throne from That's the Spirit, just very middle-of-the-road modern BMTH. But then the rest of the release dropped this past Friday, October 30th, and holy shit, they have some serious bangers on there. I gotta start with the baby metal featured song Kingslayer. I truly believe this is the best song they've written since that's the spirit. Obviously, as I've said in the past, I wanted the band to lean poppier, to break out of the rock box that they're in and break out of the scene entirely. And I think part of that was because the heavier stuff they were putting out was missing the mark, but damn, they hit a home run with this song. It feels like they're pushing the limits of the genre again and not relying much on previous tricks they've learned. There's a perfect dynamic of heavy and light between Fish's tasteful programming. Ali's fantastic vocal delivery on both his yells and growls, stupid heavy riffs that hit at the perfect time, and then arguably the stars of the track Baby Metal, who drive home the song's pop element without even so much as a single stumble. This might be my favorite scene song of 2020, and it feels so good to truly believe in a Bring Me song again. The opener of the EP, Dear Diary, honestly might be Bring Me's heaviest song since Simp Eternal. Pulsating synths over punky D-beats, some super shreddy guitar parts, and aggressive vocal delivery from Ollie. This track is just super fun and it's cool for the band to take the restraints off and just do something heavy for the sake of being heavy again. One by One is very solid, it features Nova Twins and really feels like a true single. I wish they would have released this ahead of the album and given it a music video treatment instead of teardrops. This was the song that was pushed on Spotify's New Music Friday playlist this week though, so that is a good sign. The Amy Lee song, One Day the Only Butterflies Left Will Be in Your Chest as You March Towards Your Death, is a piano ballad to close the release. It's interesting because Ali told Enemy, Evanescence actually sued Bring Me Over Nihilus Blues off of Ammo. But Bring Me didn't even fight it, and then when Amy had her management reach out, say she liked their band and wanted to work together. So all in all, despite an up and down last two years for Bring Me output-wise, Survival Horror is a fantastic release and has received almost universal praise from fans and critics alike. Who knows what they're going to sound like on the next EP or whatever it becomes, but they certainly hit a stride here, and they want to be the crossover band that brings rock back to the mainstream, so here they are, writing the most dynamic rock music in the scene, and maintaining their spot as the biggest band. Will they grow from this release? Ultimately, I don't think so. There is nowhere that I've seen where these songs are reaching a new audience minus the Youngblood feature, and that seems to be one of the least liked songs on the whole release. But we'll see. Despite likely not necessarily growing from this release, it does feel like Bring Me have found their footing again, and they're back on their track of pushing genre boundaries into uncharted territory. I'm very excited for the future of this band. Fingers crossed they keep growing, knocking down walls, and break out of the scene on their own terms. That does it for our two-part deep dive on Bring Me the Horizon. That was a big one. I definitely could have split that up into three parts. But thank you so much for listening and being patient. I apologize for the wait this week. This was way more of a project than I was anticipating. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoseen at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Notetoseen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram you enjoy the show please drop a review on itunes i'd appreciate it very much until next week stay safe and i'll talk to you soon